everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. Today we're talking with Sydney Adams, senior game designer at Intercept Games. Sydney and I discuss storytelling across film and video games, her experience working in the industry, how she defines a career well spent, and for you Magic the Gathering fans, she talks about her experience leading the charge in creating the Black is Magic line of cards for the game that was released in 2021. Sydney's one of those people that if you're lucky enough to talk to her, you can talk to her all day. The one word that comes to mind when trying to describe Sydney is profundity. She has a really wonderful and unique perspective on the industry and life itself that I think you're really, really going to enjoy. So without further ado, here's Sydney Adams. Okay, so Sydney, what do you what are some really core tenets to you of, of good storytelling? Um, I would say that good storytelling feels like it could be real. Um, and that's kind of crazy to say, considering I've worked a lot in fantasy spaces, but I would say that you can understand the character's motivation. You have multiple characters that have life and depth and motivation, and you have a story that grips you. Um, I don't necessarily think that the beginning, middle, end structure that we're used to is always the best storytelling structure, but I think that storytelling, especially in games, uh, has to make the player feel invested and has to make the player feel like they want to know more about the world that they're in. Yeah, I think that's, I, I agree with that. And I think to um, to go back to what you're talking about with the characters, like, are, are, are things feeling real? I think also that just means like it being relatable, right? That you can put yourself in that situation and you feel what these characters are going through. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, there are characters where you can admire them, you know, like Mario, for example. Like Mario is a fun game. You can definitely get into character while playing, you know, any of the various games in that world. But Mario as a character and as a story device, you don't think like, oh, what does he do when he goes home after, you know, saving Peach? You know, you don't really, you're not as invested in uh, what's going on with him versus, you know, Breath of the Wild um, when you have this person, you know, Link coming awake after hundreds of years in a semi like post-apocalyptic world where things have gone terribly wrong and the storytelling devices of these fallen heroes continually come up over and over and they build like that's something that I think is quite gripping like that's the difference the depth of that story yeah there's there's more going on underneath the hood there for sure do you feel like characters have to be sympathetic in order for you to to get behind them or or to enjoy their story um I would say no because I mean you have a bunch of I think I think that there are definitely a lot of properties that have anti-heroes that have villains sort of as the central point of reference. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to empathize in terms of, man, I understand what you're doing. I, you know, if I was me, I would be doing something similar. Um, but I think just understanding that there is motivation and that there is feeling behind it and 
and watching the ways in which they can influence the world around them and how the world around them reacts. Um, I don't think that putting yourself in that place is always uh, necessary, as is usually with empathy. Um, and sometimes simpler games have very interesting stories and hooks. Um, there's this indie game that came out recently called Cult of the Lamb. I don't know if you've played it at all. Mm-mm, no. Um, but you're, the main character is a lamb, right? Like, it's it's this concept where uh, it, they say it was like Stardew Valley and, like, the rising of Isaac or something at the same time. Uh, the, the like, And it was just an interesting... In fact, I think I might have gotten that second title wrong. Um, but it's sort it's, of like is, a, is it Binding of Isaac? Binding of Isaac. That's binding what it is. Isaac. It's a B. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm, something is wrong with what I said. Rising of Isaac also sounds kind of cool, though. It does. <laughs> but yes, the Binding of Isaac and Stardew Valley meet together. But the concept is, you know, you are a lamb, and the, the beginning intro series makes you walk to your death. You know, like, and feeling that sort of tension and not being able to get out of it because that is sort of the precursor for you to have this sort of revenge arc, to have this sort of power-hungry arc, to, you know... And I, and I felt emotionally invested in that character. I felt emotionally invested in figuring out, like, what's going to happen at the end of that. But obviously, we are not lambs. Like, <laughs> you know, um, I think that the biggest thing is how can the creator grip you with emotion... Um, so I guess, you know, there's always going to be a debate on what a good story needs. There's schools of thought on what a good story needs. But at the end of the day, I would say that if it makes you feel something, then there's a chance that it might be just a good story. Yeah, I think you're, uh, you're like inside my mind, uh, cause that's, <laughs> that's pretty much how I feel. Like I've, I've always, so I come from film background and one of the things they, they tell you initially is like your main character has to be sympathetic. They have to be. You know, it has to be something where it's like the audience can really get behind them and they have to, you know, have things happen in their their life that that makes it just, you know, you immediately get invested in them and all this stuff. But, I, you know, I completely disagree with that. I think the, the most important thing is feeling something. You don't necessarily have to feel sympathy for them, but you have to understand, like what you're saying, their their motivation. I mean, I, I find, um, you know, Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood and Daniel Day-Lewis character. Um, he's an awful person like terrible person, but a fascinating character. You want to know what's what he's going to do and what's going to happen to him. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you sort of have this idea that you have to directly, you know, sympathize or empathize with the character as close as possible, like what comes to mind for me are like two different issues. The first being that we are all individual people and you get in tricky territory when you start designing for yourself if that makes sense right because we each empathize potentially most closest with people who have the same experience as us so if you're only creating what you yourself could see as your own experience that's how we end up with a saturation of characters that look the same act the same have the same motivation and isolate the grander experience for not trying to seek out what else the world has to offer um And it also just doesn't really track when you think of the way that film also is able to do um, that exact same thing and hook you with a character who you know is not great. You know, like uh, the 
TV Netflix uh, series BoJack Horseman, right? Like, he is a deeply flawed character. He is the main character, you know, and his entire arc is him realizing the depth of his own depravity and, and ultimately trying to figure out if he's going to change that and him constantly disappointing the audience every time he stay, takes a step forward. But we still keep coming back every single time because of the interactions between everybody who's influenced around him. And, you know, just the funniness and the, the you know, the brilliance of the writing. Or even if you think just more generically like comics or, like you said, film, like The Watchmen. You know, uh, you have a world in which you have heroes who are grittier and flawed and do atrocities. And, you know, there, there's, there's a situation where you might have one person that you're like, all right, I am definitely rooting for you. But that doesn't mean that they haven't done terrible things. Like Rorschach, you know, like, there's a reason why he is the way he is. And you can be like, all right, I want Rorschach, this anti-hero, to come to some form of some form of conclusion around um, around what was going on in the series. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't beat people to death, you know? <laughs> right, right. And it's like I, I don't, and then and you don't empathize with that, and that doesn't grip you because, like, oh yeah, I've also beaten people to death. I understand yeah. what that's <laughs> like, you know? Right. Yeah, if that's not relatable, I don't know what is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to get those yeah, I think stains just, out. Right. It's just the yeah the, the the flaws just make make people more human. I think. I mean, like that's the reason I really get more interested in in like anti hero stories, or even if it's if it or even if you have a hero. Like, that's what I love about um, Empire Strikes Back was you know. Luke did all these amazing things in, in the first movie uh, in, in A New Hope, and then uh, an Empire gets his ass kicked just the entire time, and, and that makes him more human and more more relatable. He doesn't feel as much like an archetype anymore. He feels more like a person. Exactly, because, you know, it, 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 if someone never loses, it seems unnatural. You know, it seems like they might be cheating. Like, people start looking into things. Because perfection is very, it's not human. So when we create characters that are these perfect idealized versions of, I guess, humanity, and we don't necessarily, you know, do anything to address what we're doing, um, I think it hits that weird uncanny valley that we all feel where we're like, oh, this just can't be real. You know, nobody wins all the time. There's a drawback. You know, One Punch Man, like, the the issue with him is that he always wins. And as a result, he's cripplingly depressed because he no longer has that human element of failing and getting better. And that seems realistic in a way, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a little crazy show, but you can get behind that character, Saitama, and understand, like, oh, yeah, like, the reason why this makes sense is because there's nothing to look forward to, you know, like... It's completing the human experience, you know, the experience of finding something that you love and working towards it to be the best and then just being the best and then not knowing where to go from there. Like even people who are at the top of their fields are considered the best right now, you know, as taste changes, as time continues, they will find themselves struggling again. And I think it's that struggle that makes for good story and makes for good action and makes 
it interesting. Yeah, no, totally, totally agree with you. So what, what kind of stories do you like to create then knowing your perspective on storytelling? Like what, what, what kind of characters do you like to build and, and things like that in terms of making your own stories? It's interesting because like for the last couple of uh, years, I've been sort of uh, creating characters towards a prompt. So like the characters that I make in my spare time, um, I think I, I, I love characters that are put in situations that they're not qualified for, at least to the to the naked eye. Right. Like one of my favorite movies of all time is Spirited Away. Just thinking of Chihiro, this young girl who is, you know, going through this move and she feels sad that she's leaving everything that she's known behind and her parents take this detour and then she ends up in the spirit world where there are, you know, dragon spirits and river spirits and she ends up, you know, indentured to a witch. Like, what kid is ready for any of that, you know? Um... And seeing how she sort of transforms throughout the movie is, you know, something that I really, I really, I really loved. And I really empathize every time I see it more and more and more. Because really, it's just a classic example of you don't have a choice but to change. You know, um, I love characters that can rise to the occasion. Um, and sometimes it is nice when they have their own baggage, like, because it's helpful to understand the framing device and the sort of mindset that they're going into prior to everything else that's happening. Um, Cause you know, it, it, that's, that's life, isn't it? Right? Like when, yeah. when stuff comes up, when, when life gets hard, it's not as though the, the things that you were dealing with at that present moment aren't there. You know, like it'd be nice if it's like, Oh, there's going to be a meteor that you're going to have to save the world from. So we're going to clear your schedule. You won't have to pay your rent, you know, <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, you won't have to take care of your dog. You won't have a, uh, whatever issues you already have. Um, so don't even worry about that. Go ahead and handle the meteor. It's like, Nope, you're going to be doing that. Like Spider-Man, like I, I love the character and, and, do forgive me. I'm going to be just jumping between references and references. No, do it. Do it. I love it. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, Spider-Man is probably... I've gone back and forth, but I have to give it to him. I have to. Spider-Man is my favorite Marvel hero. Uh, and I think it's because when I grew up, I was reading the comics. I've read so many different versions of him. I've read um, the versions in... I've read Japanese manga versions, like, and the thing that they all somewhat keep is the fact that, like, yes, yes, he is Spider-Man, and he has these powers, and he can do all this amazing, uh, you know, he could do amazing things. But at the end of the day, like, either he's, like, a reporter with a terrible boss, or he's a student just trying to, like, deal with student things, you know, living in some place, eating top ramen, you know, like the, the one departure was where they were like, oh, what if he sort of gave into his sort of like megalomania that he sort of has passively? Because um, there was sort of an argument in the community about how impactful the death of uh, his uh, of Uncle Ben was. And so like in a world where uh, he could sort of lean into the mentor that was Iron Man and is Iron Man, I guess, canonically now, um, you know, what does he become? 
and him becoming sort of a power hungry person who asserts his power over others fundamentally changes him and flaws him in another interesting way. But I think that works so effectively because we know where he came from, you know? Yeah. It's also not a side we were used to seeing of him. We're used to seeing him being very selfless. Exactly. I do think they, they, I don't know, I was about to say, like, I think they took it a little far at times because that's when they were, like, doing the whole, like, oh, yeah, Captain America secretly Hydra the whole time. And I'm like, I don't buy it. I'm not, yeah. no, no, I'm not going to yeah. take that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's moments like that. It's the moment where he crawls in from duty in his window and goes to the little brownstone, you know, in the movies, it's the m- moments where he's got to, like, jump into bed and bring the covers over his head so Aunt May can't see that he's secretly, you know, Spider-Man. Um, I, th- I think there's just something really interesting about reality intersecting with grandiose, you know, stakes or improbability. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, that was one of the things I really appreciated about the uh, the last movie was him having to you know, make the decision to basically let everyone, and sorry for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's been out for pretty much a year spoilers, now at this point. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoilers. <laughs> yeah, skip ahead to, I don't know what time stamp it's going to be, but, um, you know, when he when he makes the decision to, to you know, let everybody forget who he is, um, you know, to sort of restore balance in the world, um, he has to do that. It's such a sacrifice. It's such a great moment. Um, where it's like, man, this character really has to deal with a lot of consequences here based off what, you know, the decision he made. And he made the decision for the greater good. Yeah, and it was heartbreaking. You know, like, everybody had complained, like, oh, Spider-Man has it too good. You know, like, uh, he he doesn't have to go through anything, really. Like, they, there was this weird thing where everyone assumed, like, because his life was going well, that it would always go well. And then as soon as it went poorly, they were like, ah, oh, that was kind of harsh. And it's like, you can't have it both ways, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, seeing him have to start over. And and even though it was a sad ending, the good part of the story, right? Like, there are stories that are tragedy for tragedy's sake. But that silver lining, that eternal hope that I think is what motivates a lot of humanity, knowing, like... If today is terrible, tomorrow is another opportunity. Knowing that they're still in his life, like he knows where they work, he can try to rebuild those relationships. And if they're true and real, and after everything that you've seen him go through, you know that they're true and real, you know, he, uh, he'll he get them again. And they will be a different version, and he'll be a better version of himself having, you know, having grown and learned how to interact with people and the preciousness of who they are and the power for him to stand on his own at the end, you know, like get it. When he pulled out his GED book, like, ah, ah, not a dry eye in the room. (laughs) Right. Right. And and that was, you know, that's just something too. It's just, he, he keeps going no matter what he, you know, no matter what the, the circumstances or how much upheaval there is, you know, he just kept going. And that's inspiring, too. And, you you know, you lose everything. And that's the thing I always didn't like about the Spider-Man was like, oh, man, you're getting bailed out by the Tony, Tar- uh, Tony Stark tech and and all this stuff. And, and you know, he's getting all these advantages um, that way where he's not really making it, his, uh, you know, on his own, like we've seen in 
prior iterations of the character. And now it's like, okay, he's starting from literally ground zero now. Yeah. And I love that. And I love I that. It really makes the whole the, arc complete. It does. And I don't know if they plan on having more movies with him. Like there are some people who are like, now they're going to switch him. And I'm like, no, 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 I hope not. I hope we get at least one movie with this version where he's really starting from the ground up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like starting over the character in a way, but he's, he's informed by all the things that happened to him. It's, it's like a, almost like a weird reboot sort of thing, but with the same character. But I, I think it was a really cool storytelling decision. It was. And, and I appreciated too, that it wasn't just abrupt, like the movie in between, uh, no way home. He, he was dealing with the death of Iron Man. And that was a huge part of, you know, his shift in mentality and his need to become independent. Because like you said, initially he had this mentor, this extremely powerful mentor who was basically baby gating the world for him. And then he loses it. He's susceptible to everything that happens when you have power. He's susceptible to people, you know, coming as his friend and pushing on his insecurities to manipulate him into what they want him to do or how he they want him to act. And I mean that's just that's that's the that's the reality I think of uh somebody graduating high school, somebody graduating college, somebody, you know, trying to get a field in acting or writing or some sort of arts where the path isn't necessarily linear or straight. You know, you have to learn yourself, you know, who is coming with you, to you with legitimacy and who's a con artist, you know, and you have to be able to trust yourself in every instance to be able to navigate uh, unfamiliar territory. Cause that's, that's what living is continually pushing yourself into things that you've never done before. Yeah. It's, it's definitely like a transitional metaphor and also just like, you know, losing, you know, people deal with losing parents or losing mentors, um, you know, with losing Tony Stark and then Aunt May getting yeah. uh, grilled oh. by the, 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 uh, the, the hang glider. That uh, was, you know, it's, that it's, was, that was rough. I, that was rough. That was pretty hardcore. I was like, damn, they went there. Okay. It's like, they, both of them? It's, it's just like, not even Aunt May. Yeah. It's like, all right. Yeah. Or yeah, even like yeah. just another property, the Spider Verse, like when this, like Miles Morales. Oh my goodness! Like, I love that we finally got a version of him on screen, animated, and I felt like the art style was so interesting and different for Spider Verse, and it was just a really nice way to highlight, um, you know, all the different iterations in a way that made you see their commonality. Uh, and, and in the same way at the beginning, right? He starts with a mentor, which is, you know, the spider, Sp Parker B, who, uh, like, P uh, Peter B. Parker. <laughs> and, you know, he he's at the end, I guess, of his arc, right? He's been a good Spider-Man. He got the girl and he lost her. You know, like, he's, you know, in this also, funny enough, spiral of depression and anxiety and stress eating, Um and now he's thrust into responsibility that he didn't expect to have. This kid who is in immediate danger, right? Like, it's not like they meet and they don't almost immediately get attacked, right? Um, and the kid having his own arc of having that mentor 
and then realizing, oh, this mentor has to go back to their world. Like, I have to go out on my own. You know, the moment in which they decide to go off without him and he has to be by himself and he has to grapple with the idea of, okay, like, who am I at my core? Can I really do this? You know, dealing with the loss of his own uncle. Um, and at the end, all the mentors going away and it just being him needing to maintain what he started. You know, it's it's an arc that takes many different forms, but has a similar storyline. It's learning something that you didn't know before about yourself, positive or negative, and changing because of that. Yeah, I think, you know, for the most part, there has to be some sort of change or, or, or like maybe not even the character, but in the character's world at the bare minimum to, to really tell you, you know, this is the consequence of, of what happened, good or bad. Right. And I think, yeah, I mean, that movie did a, did a really good job of that. And that was another thing I really appreciated um, about about the film was, you know, with with Miles Mor- the Miles Morales character, I, I, I like because I don't feel like it's just black Spider-Man yeah. telling like the same story with, you know, a, bl- a, a black character as, as Spider-Man. He's his own person who undergoes very similar, relatable things, you know, definitely informed by 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 Peter Parker. But in, in the sense that they do enough, I think, to really make him stand on his own. And I think that's really important, um, especially in an age where. This is something I kind of wanted to talk about at the end, but we're kind of, <laughs> we're kind of, um, it sort of feels like a natural segue. But, you know, one of the things that kind of bugs me is when, you know, things are remade and it's like, you know, all right, we're going to do this, but here's, you know, sort of the black version of this or, or that. That's already come before. And there's always going to be the comparison of the original. And I always feel like, well, why don't we just make an original film with this, this actor? Um, you know, or, or whatever. Right. Because it's just like, it's never going to stand on its own. And that's the thing I love about Miles Morales is that he stands on his own. Yeah. I think that there's like a definite difference between diversity for pandering and diversity for, um, pushing, you know, pushing the boundaries of what we believe, pushing, you know, what we believe to be mainstream, And I I think it's a double-edged sword, right? Because to a certain extent, because media is very white and male and very specifically geared to a majority and doesn't necessarily... Like, we have a lot more diversity now in media than I think we ever had. Like, I always thought that growing up in the 90s was, like, the peak, right? You had all these different shows, you had all these different personalities, like growing up with baby SNL, like all that and seeing, you know, a bunch of people that looked like me and didn't and understanding like, oh, we can all get together and do things. And then seeing just a sort of drastic shift in beauty standards and ideas and who was the face of games and everything like that. Um, And now sort of seeing a resurgence, like there's a bit of push and pull, right? Because to a certain extent, when you don't have anything, like having something is just nice to have. Yeah. Right. So like you don't you won't necessarily love all the depictions. Like, um, I'm trying not to throw any particular thing under the bus, <laughs> <laughs> but like you 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 won't necessarily be like okay like they did this but they did not consult a single 
person of this background, you know. Um, in fact, you know what? Here, I'll I'll do it. I'll I'll jump into the fire. Um, the first uh, black princess, the princess and the frog, right? I went to the theaters with my sister and my father and my mother to see it because we were like, wow, like took them long enough, but we got it and let's go see what this is gonna be. And that is a film that is polarizing just to, to I think a lot of people's confusion um, because you could tell that they put a lot of effort in, right? Like they did interesting casting, they did interesting choices, um, but she's a frog majority of the movie, right? Like you get to see her in that princess form at the very end and her arc, you know, while it may sort of be true to, um, you know, the black experience of growing up in a place that's sort of poverty stricken and has a huge community that sort of surrounds itself to take care of itself because the, the rich are not willing to do so and having to work constantly for basically pennies in order to save up your money and still being passed up by an investor that, you know, doesn't believe that you are capable of maintaining it on your own because of what they see when they look at you. Like, those things are real. I don't know if we necessarily thought we were going to get that in a princess movie, you know, and like, and her being a princess, right? Like, she technically is because she marries Naveen. He's a prince. She becomes a princess. But her arc, you know, is I'm a black woman, I want a restaurant, and I'm gonna just, my issue is I work too much. You know, like, I need to relax. Like, it didn't, it felt like she was a princess who had to do all of the work in her story. You know, she didn't get a prince who wanted to uplift her and, you know, support her and was her equal. She basically had to, I don't know, like, save and raise him into the person that she needed him to be. He rose to the challenge, but like, that doesn't make me feel good seeing that. Like, that doesn't make me feel like, oh, yay for her. You know, like, I don't think it was what the audience necessarily expected because it, like you say, we live in a world of comparison. And it was a stark realization that, okay, so if you're a Rapunzel or, you know, if uh, Aurora or, you know, if you're um, Cinderella, uh, you may go through trials and tribulations, but like eventually you'll get to sort of live in luxury and have this life and you won't really have to work as hard. Like your arc is emotional. You don't necessarily have to go to graveyards and fight things and see your friends in bug form die. You know, like it's an interesting contrast. And I think the question I always have in my head is like, why did they choose this reaction? Like, why wasn't Tiana just like a actual princess somewhere you know, dealing with some sort of princess issue, like somebody trying to get her kingdom and having to do like a brave type arc where she had to defend it and, you know, become her own person. Like, why did her struggle as a black woman have to be rooted in struggle, you know? Um, and as we look at examples of people trying to make things um, different, like the, the Ariel movie coming out, right, with Chloe Bailey, um, that's a big hot topic. And it's, it's kind of crazy because it's, I, I realized that the, the issue with reboots, right, is that the, the people who wanted to see that kind of diversity when they're growing up, like, you know, for me, all I had was like Jasmine and Pocahontas. And looking back at that, like, 
that could have been problematic, you know, <laughs> but they were the melanated princesses that I had to choose from. And so we have a new generation of kids who are looking and, and trying to look for themselves and things. And with these live action reboots, you know, it, we had Cinderella and she was white. And then we had Beauty and the Beast Belle and then she was white. And then like, it, you know, like then we had the lions. I don't think lions have race, but you know, like they were what they were. So like, it's not like they started with immediately rebooting and rebooting only people of color, right? Like it, it was gradual. So it's like when we eventually get the thing that we want, it takes longer and we have to sit through things first, right? Um, and then Chloe Bailey is an incredibly talented singer. You know, she's a really good actress. And she is, you know, to say that she's not qualified, because people were saying, oh, it's not about race. It's about who is qualified for the role. It's like, well, why is she not qualified, you know? Um, and I think that with reboots of color, the, the, the outrage comes from this sense of being replaced, this sense that, you know, people are trying to overwrite something that people hold dear to their hearts. Um, but it also reveals like what aspects, you know, they thought were dear. And I find that very fascinating, you know, like. Ariel, if I remember, she had, like, one black sister. Like, I remember seeing one black mermaid yeah. far in the background. Yeah, that had nothing you know, to do, really. Pretty much. No. Like, an entire ocean right. of mythical beings. And you telling me there's not... Like, they're sitting out on the sun. Like, <laughs> you know, she shouldn't be that pale right. in the first place. If we're talking about realism, if you are living in the ocean, you're, you know, like, sure. Let's say, that who knows what the composition, the skin composition of a mermaid is, right? Either she would be deathly pale because she's living, like, below in the, like, deep, scary space where we have, like, anglerfish and, like, things of nightmares, right? right. <laughs> or she's on the, the sort of yeah. top dolphin layer where she's probably beaching herself on rocks, which we saw her do. So she should have a glorious tan, you know, no matter what she is. And it's just the idea that... Uh, we have to we have to we have to get past offense and understand what the root of these things are like i'm sh i think that the there are a lot of efforts to get more original stories out there but i feel like some of the things that are happening now like it it's it's just showing i wouldn't say like it's writing wrong right but i would say that it's just showing that we have a different understanding of what's acceptable these days you know like the existence of a movie like Moana the existence of you know movies that are sharing culture that has been actively impacted by the choices of the United States you know like even though that's why it's like I have a weird feeling about like the Princess Frog because you know it sh celebrates New Orleans and that is something very significant you know, and showing that, you know, yeah, sometimes you do come from this small place that doesn't have a lot of housing and you find a way to make it work. You know, um, I think if it was a story in itself, as opposed to like the first black princess, it'd probably be a little less polarizing because, you know, it's, it was basically just we just didn't want her to struggle. Like it felt too real to a certain extent, like princess movies to a certain extent have a fantasy lens that we want to stay in and enjoy for the most part um whereas it felt just like oh yeah no i know her that happened you know <laughs> sans the frog part that is a reality um 
and yeah, I, it, 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 whenever people, I guess, feel like, I feel like we're at a place now where we can't objectively tell what is a positive step towards diversity and what is pandering because they come sort of with a similar ire. And so it, for me, like, often when I hear the whole, like, oh, you are doing this just to do this, why not make an original story? Um, it, it often feels like an easy fruit, you know? Like, that's, of course you could say that. Like, but who knows what's going on in the background? Like, who knows how hard it was to get Black Panther greenlit? Who knows how hard it is to get an audience for things that people just think won't sell? Yeah. And that's the thing, too, is as I think that, you know, with, you know, like Little Mermaid, for example, it's a story that's renowned, that's beloved. Um, and the story's already there. Right. So it's like so, I mean, I, I understand it. Right. Like, I, I get it um, in terms of like, you know, having Chloe Bailey play that role. I don't have an issue oh, yeah, with her. No. I, don't, you know, I, don't, I wasn't that's implying fine. that, you know, it, it's. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm not saying you were like just like my thing that is most frustrating about these Disney remakes to me is that they feel like they're made without any care, without any heart. Like there's great special effects, um, you know, performances can be good, but they just feel really lazy to me. They feel really lazy to me. They don't feel like they have the heart of the original. It feels like this is a well-known thing. Let's just remake it because we'll make a, a billion dollars. And I wonder, like, is it not as good just because, like, the nostalgia attached to the moment and who you were and what happened in that previous space? You know, like, because for us. Ah. I mean, I'd say, like, Beauty and the Beast. Like, like Beauty and the Beast, to me, like, uh, uh, Emma Watson can't sing worth shit. You know, that was the first thing that stood out to me. And then they just did a lot of weird stuff for the characters that didn't make sense. And they were almost remaking scenes beat for beat. It was like when, um, I can't remember which director did this, but they remade Psycho almost shot for shot. And I was like, why are we doing this? <laughs> like, we're not adding anything new to the proceedings here. You're not telling the story in a... Yeah, like sometimes, like, I think in the Cinderella version, they, I think, added a couple songs from the Broadway or theatrical version. But, like, yeah, I don't think Beauty and the Beast uh, added much. Yeah, or Lion King added, like, a couple of new scenes, but it was just like, this is pretty much the same movie. And it was really weird watching these photorealistic animals behave the way that they behaved. You know, it's like the the, the, the original animals had some characterization in them. They had some some depth, some humanity. These, pe- these things felt like very uncanny valley. It, yeah, it, it was wrong. weird a little bit. Like, yeah. I, was, I was watching, like, a lion speak and i was like this is this yeah. is interesting it like, feels I feel like, totally <laughs> wrong <laughs> yeah it's this the spectacle of it in itself like i think kind of pushes you away from the story but that's for us right i think we're talking about movies that are for kids who are, who sure. are going to see them and for the I first be, time now right and i know no kids really so i'd be interested in and in seeing what the <laughs> reaction of kids like if this, this is their first exposure to beauty and the beast to lion king or when the little mermaid comes out I was like what did you think of that did that yeah. work for you and, and that's i think the like thing. the thing for that, kids it yeah. does mm-hmm. like kids mm-hmm. are not as critical kids like kids if they like it they like it put it on my lunchbox put it on my backpack you know like it i think as we get older and more cynical and more critical, these things matter so much more to us, you know? Um, yeah, because I think you're right about the nostalgia. It does represent something as good as the movies are. 
it does represent a sort of more innocent, pure part, I guess, of your life. And then when it gets remade, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. You it's can't that, do that protection over it. It's that feeling yeah. that you need to come to its aid and keep it as it was or you're going to lose that memory. But that movie will always exist. You don't have to see the new one. You can always enjoy that in whatever form that it comes. We spent a great amount of time talking about stories. So let, let's talk about some games. Tell me the first kind of games that had a, a real impact on you. Funnily enough, it was like the Zelda slash Link type games because uh, my mom was into those. And I promised her this is the last time I'm going to talk about her because she keeps ending up in every single interview or anything that I do. <laughs> so, but she used to play them. And so like... My first foray was playing the games that she had, you know, the ones that she bought for my dad. So, like, there was, like, original, like, Need for Speed on the GameCube or something. Like, uh, uh, the it, it was an interesting time because role-playing games was sort of my first understanding. It was basically role-playing games. So I got super into, like, World of Warcraft. And there was this free... I don't want to say it's a free version of it, but there's a free uh, RPG that was called Perfect World. And I think that was by Cryptic. And Perfect World was basically, you know, you could be a high elf, you could be all these things. But I got really into RPGs because uh, the ones that had world builders had character customization. And playing custom characters was the first time that I got to play a character that looked like me. Um, you know, even if she had, you know, wings out of her head and, you know, like elven ears, like being able to represent darker skin was an interesting experience. Um, and then outside of that, we would play like Uno and, you know, Scrabble. Like there was always some kind of game like charades. And my family, we'd get so competitive that sometimes we'd have to like stop like me and my cousins during the holiday se uh, season, you know. All of a sudden, it'd be like, all right, we can't play this anymore. <laughs> you know, this is becoming too too much of a knockdown drag out. Um, but yeah, there was always sort of an air of fun growing up, um, which I am very grateful for. Um, and so, like, the gamification of everyday life is something that I enjoy, you know. Um, it starts, and, and kids do it all the time. They just don't realize it. It's like, oh, whoever gets to the car first wins, you know, Um it's little moments where you can sort of use your imagination. And my mom was a teacher. Um, she works in a different thing now, but she was a teacher for over 20 years. So she worked intentionally to foster our creativity. You know, she'd give us a coloring book, but she'd also just give us a blank piece of paper and a bunch of colors and be like, you know, do something. You know, uh, we'd spend a lot of time in the library. In the library, I would uh, go to the computer lab and I would rent out CD-ROMs <laughs> and I would play like the different games uh, like and get exposure to just random things because it's whatever the library had, you know. Um, so a lot of those might have been like, you know, Aladdin adventures. Uh, I remember playing uh, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, like just very you know and then like there was educational games like math blaster right like it was a very big range and as my taste started to develop as a teen um i did sink further sort of into the fantasy realm like i remember there was like a full summer 
I don't remember how old I was, but like I had I had gotten super entrenched and in um, Perfect World. I had a guild that I was a part of. We had planned missions and raids that we needed to go on. Like I and, and we were on different time zones. So basically the way that I could like hit up everybody was basically like from the moment I woke up and had breakfast and did the whole thing, I'd be playing and then to the moment I went to sleep. And since it wasn't like a fast teleport game, there were moments where I had to fly to different destinations. So I would just put on auto flight because I was playing this winged elf so I could be in the sky where nothing would attack me. I just auto path and then I go do things and make my appearances. And I remember thinking, I don't understand how I'm getting away with this. Like I'm playing this game for all day. Like I have not seen a lick of sunshine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I was sort of allowed to do those things. Um, and, uh, I think that once I started, um, you know, once I started kind of getting involved more so with, um, multiplayer games, because a lot of the games that I had played early on that fostered my love of games were single player experiences, um, or, you know, community tabletop experiences, I actually started to realize, like, oh, the game community is interesting. You know, like, it, uh, you know, WoW and those types of things were the first interaction that I had with people who were not related to me in the grander world of games. And, you know, my reception of my character as a black, you know, character, because I would always just make a version of me because it was cool. Uh, and seeing that was was eye opening to me um, that, you know, things may not be as idyllic as I had thought. And as I started, you know, going into school and, you know, joining game clubs and seeing that everybody was playing Smash and, you know, you know, uh, first person shooters and stuff like that, realizing like, oh, there's a whole depth of things that I haven't gotten into and there's a perception of who's a gamer and who's not um and I think I kind of just uh, observed it with kind of like a like a anthropological like oh how interesting but like it didn't really affect me unless it was somebody you know calling me out of my name on a server and being a little too rude um and it wasn't I think until sort of like college where I kind of had to take a break from all my gaming and all of that because you got to sort of buckle down and then I returned uh to see the landscape very much change that I was like oh this is the wild wild west <laughs> we're still kind of in the wild wild west I would say you know like there's there's a bit more accountability that I think that gaming companies have now and games have uh towards their audiences but it wasn't always that way. And it always felt, even though, you know, I have inherited games, honestly, right? Like, I play all types of games, and I don't have a story, I don't think, that's any different than most people who enjoy games. Um, that I always felt like I was an intruder, or I was a special exception. I was not expected to enjoy the things that I enjoyed, and in environments where I didn't have mature people around, I would have to prove my worthiness to being there, you know? Um, and how that sort of translates into games themselves and why people think that way. And, 
you know, the weird inability to accept different narratives and realizing why games are the way they are and why, you know, behind the hood, it always felt like there was just a quiet note at the bottom of, you know, every experience that was like, I hope you enjoy this, but it's not for you. You know, like even Bioshock, like I love Bioshock. I adore Bioshock, right? In my head, like when I'm playing the game and I know that I am playing a specific character, right? It's still kind of weird to me that I think like, oh, all those creepy things crawling on the ceiling, like all of them are pale. <laughs> like every single character from a flashback, you know, like not a single one of any type of diversity, you know, like, and then even just my own hands. It's like, why couldn't, so we don't have a full image of the character at any point. Like, I wouldn't mind playing a guy, but, like, why couldn't I change the color of my hands? Or why couldn't these be gloves? Like, just the idea that nobody thought about this because nobody cares because, of course, the perspective wouldn't, like, jar anyone because it was likely created by people who had those types of hands. It's the little things, like, that let you know that your experience in gaming is fraught. You know, like, the thing that you love so much can also bring you a lot of pain. It's 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 weird. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think that's that's fascinating to think about because you know me being you know a white guy, uh, it's just something I never thought about. Yeah, you know, I come from a totally a completely different perspective, right? So, and, and, and that's um, the thing, like you wouldn't necessarily yeah. think about it because it's unconscious, right? And then now that you know, especially when I've you know as I got older. And, and started, you know, I always had a pretty diverse group of friends, but, um, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, I, I've, ta I've had more in-depth discussions with those people about, about you know, what they see in, in their media and things like that. And it always strikes me when, when you know, especially in, in games, and we've had people on the show talk about this too, where it's just like, there's no one that looks like me. I feel alienated. I feel isolated because of that. And it's just something that, you know, I'm like, oh man, I never, never considered that. <laughs> and it has to, it has to feel so weird. Right. I, I would, yeah. I would think for you, especially, you know, for you also, <laughs> you know, being a, being a woman as well. Right. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Uh, I found out from a recent article, um, I had, uh, I had done, um, a, uh, interview with Code Academy and, uh, the interviewer added some facts that I, you know, I knew the stats were out there, but I wasn't trying to find them. Um, but yeah, uh, the game industry, as we know, obviously is predominantly male, but I did not know that it only consists, and this is uh, information from the International Game uh, Developer Association, of about 2% people who are black. So I am both a woman and I am black. And adding those percentages means like I'm... I'm probably the only game designer in the room. I've, I've never, you know, I've been in the industry now for, uh, God, what year is it? <laughs> um, let's say five, let's say five years, five or six years. I have never worked with another black female game designer. Not once. Even when I was in school, I was the only black female game designer in my program. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a single black teacher. I, you know, or or anyone of color now that I think about. Oh, actually, yes, I had I had a but she was a teacher aide. <laughs> 
Yes, you know, like, but it's it's one of those things where it's like, you get used to it. You know, you get used to knowing that when you're in the room, you're going to have to swallow a certain level of misunderstanding, right? Like, you're going to, someone's going to say something crazy to you and you're going to have to be like, you're not going to, you're going to have to not take it personally, you know, like, uh, the attention on you maybe even more than you want. Like even even this interaction where like I'm having sort of uh, like we're speaking on this podcast. It's interesting for me because when I first started games, like one of the reasons that I joined games was, yes, I wanted to make games that the younger me would have really loved. I wanted to, to add more, uh, you know, more of the world and the representation across everybody, you know, in in games that people that people love. Like I don't feel like it needs to be a situation where there's a replacement. I just think there just needs to be more. You know, like I'm not saying don't have, you know, white hand options. I'm saying have more, you know? Um and so I found myself in this interesting place. And, and yeah, I just, I think I, I originally just wanted to go into games and I liked the idea that we work on a team. Like I never wanted to be a hero or like the person whose name is known. Like I liked the idea that I could be like the secret like person behind something amazing. And then I could just be like sipping my tea while people talked about it and be like, ho, ho, ho. Yeah, you if know, only like, you knew. Anime, I eyeglass adjustment you know um but i soon realized that i was so much of an anomaly that that was not gonna happen um i ended up in a situation where uh people were sort of looking for the diversity of the company that i had worked at and i was one of the few people there um and so like I ended up like a topic of discussion, you know, people were like looking at my LinkedIn, they were looking at my picture, they were, you know, talking about the work that I had done. And it was like, oh, like, I am, I there was no hiding, you know, because no matter how much I just want to be Sydney, I am a black female game designer. And that means something in a space where there are not a lot of me. And people want me to talk about what that's like. And people want me to be a voice. And I'm a good speaker. And I like to think that I have good ideas and good thoughts. And so I had to come to this personal realization of, am I going to allow others to determine what my narrative is by staying silent? Or am I just going to jump into the fray and people can call me whatever names they want and slide into my DMs and be awful and hate the products that I do um, and all of those things and just accept that that is possible. You know, like I had talked to another woman in the industry who uh, had suffered from Gamergate and I was like, how do you protect yourself? Like, how do you deal with people coming for you and saying terrible, terrible things to you and you not like you like what do you do like is that just the price of entry for being in this space and they told me quite frankly yes you know like it was I remember feeling a bit heartbroken because I wanted a different answer but that is the truth you know like if you put yourself in a public sphere you get all types of people you get all types of opinions and you have to be able to have the mental fortitude to sort of carry that 
And so when I kind of made that choice, I was like, all right, well, you know what? Fine. Like, I'll do articles. I'll do interviews. I'll do speaking engagements. And seeing the impact that it's had on the community and people who wanted that and needed that, like, it definitely does, like, on one hand, I am happy that my career is flourishing and I have been able to find, you know, people who value me and value the things that I can bring to the table. Um, but I think sometimes I just, I, I always, I had a lot of issues <laughs> structuring thought, right? I had a lot of issues in the beginning with imposter syndrome because I didn't know whether or not my opinion was being heard because the value of the opinion or whether or not it was just because it was cool to listen to me. I, I can't imagine how that wouldn't be on, on your mind, too, because um, I could see, you know, people wanting to, to hear from you just because of, of who you are and not because of what you're capable of. Yeah. And and it, I will say, like, you know, it's it's pretty easy to suss out that because the kinds of questions that I get sort of from the jump, you know, like, it's like, so... How is it? And it's like, what? <laughs> Tell me about everything. Tell me how it is. <laughs> I, you know, and it's just like, I am not going to do this weird thing where, you know, um, there's this college humor. College humor, if you don't know, it, um, is? I'm going to say is. <laughs> um, they are a YouTube um, channel that often does like satirical work. And there's this one sketch where uh, it's like a Willy Wonka sort of thing where uh, Reka, um, this, uh, it's, a, it's a woman of color and she owns basically like a chocolate factory like Willy Wonka where there's like rivers of chocolate and there's like, you know, all these amazing things. And she's in an interview with another chocolatier who is very boring <laughs> and, you know, just typical... Like, I make the chocolate and the chocolate is good. You know, like not giving anything, not giving interesting answers. And she wants to talk about her work. She wants to talk about all the cool things. But every single question that she gets is like, so, like, it must be so hard to be a woman of color in the chocolate industry, right? And she's like, yes, it is. That is difficult. But did you know that I've actually made chocolate out of this thing? Like, just... It's it's already part of my lived experience all the time. Um, so, you know, I don't mind talking about it, but, like, it's almost like beating a dead horse. And I thought, like, the way that they did that comedy sketch was hilarious, and it makes perfect sense. Like, that's exactly what it is. Feeling like, you know, feeling like you need the, un the interviewer and the person to understand that your identity is a part of you. It's not who you are. And so you want to explore the totality of that because that's how you interact with people. You know, like, um, for example, like, where are you from? I'm from Atlanta. Atla yeah. Oh, okay, uh, Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. So, like, if every conversation I had with you was like, so, like, how are the peaches in Georgia? And it's just like... Yeah, I, I just start rolling my eyes at you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's that exact reaction. It's just like, oh, yeah, Georgia, known for its peaches. Just like, yo, but the, and it's just like, oh, we also have great music and we also have great culture. And there's also these pockets of, so that's great. But how is the cobbler? Like how many times, right. where would you recommend to eat the cobbler? Like, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I think in the beginning it's hard too, because you want to use any available resource that you have to advance. 
And so to a certain extent, you feel like you have to just sort of take it and do whatever you can because you're just like everybody else who's starting out. You know, like you don't want to leave an opportunity on the table. You just want to flourish and you want to succeed. Um, but at a certain point, you realize, like, I have to have healthy boundaries because if I don't, people will take whatever I give them. And that's in any field, I would say, and that's for everyone but I would say that it's probably a bit harder for um, a woman or a person of color or, or someone who's non-binary or from a marginalized community like to immediately make that because you're already feeling like you're at a disadvantage because of who you are. It's just one of those things where I'm, where I'm always, whenever you know, that comes up, and I'm just like, man, I, I, I just can't, I can't imagine what that's actually it's actually like I've never had to deal with any of that, you know, and, yeah. and it's just like, um, I can't imagine what it would be like to not live with that on like, the other side. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, I'm yeah. like, it's like, do you just like, do you just get stuff done? Do you just wake up positive? And it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to have some breakfast. Like, no, right. Just, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting to me. Like, and it's not like I want people to feel bad. Like we are born the way we're born, you know? Um, but I think I just want people to understand that, like, it is okay to try to see someone as they are. It is okay to potentially have your own reservations of who you think people are. But you should try, at the very least, to catch yourself on those things. You know, like... Yeah, yeah. I think the whole knee-jerk reaction to anybody based off how they look or, or who they, you know, uh, or sexual orientation or whatever is always just drives me crazy. Because I'm mm -hmm. like, well, you don't know who that person is. Yeah. Like, it, it, and it's, and it's one of those things too, you know, going back to our conversation about, about media, you know, pandering versus, versus not pandering, where it's just like, when someone is defined by specific traits, whether they're a person of color or, 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 or gay, lesbian, uh, non-binary, whatever. And it's like, okay, well, you know, you're just saying repeatedly that's all that person is. Yeah. And we should listen to them because that's who they are, as opposed to saying that is an aspect of, of that person that relates very much to who they are, but they are also a person with feelings and there are things going on under, underneath, um, you know, the surface. And, and that's, and that's what I, w I wish would just happen in the, in the sense of like, we can just, it would be great if we could just normalize everything yes. and every, it, it, you know, uh, like exactly. it just drives me crazy that that can't be done yet. I mean, I think we're, it's, you know, hopefully we're taking steps towards that. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I can't even say we're close because it felt like that was. No, I don't think we're close, but I think <laughs> I think we're a hell of a lot closer than we were, say, like 30 years ago. Yeah, I could definitely say that, you know. You know, my uh, the first uh, feature film I made was uh, directed by a longtime friend of mine, African-American director. And, you know, it was just one of those things where it was. You know, I, I mean, I love this guy to death. He was in my wedding and everything. It's like, I, I don't, I'm not doing this because it's like, oh man, I'm helping an African-American director. It's like, he's my friend. He came to me. He wanted to make this movie. I want to help him make his movie. And I had nothing to do with, 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 with that his, thing, his, you know? his, his race. Yeah. I mean, it's great that we have a movie out there now that's distributed that was, that was made by an African-American director and the independent, uh, that went on an independent film festival circuit that was self-distributed, or not self-distributed, but got distribution. Let's normalize that, man. Like, I mean, I just, where, where it's like, we're not thinking about that. We're thinking about, did this person or these people make a good movie? Exactly. Like, I want us to get to the point where, like, it's not the first. We shouldn't be having the first of anything anymore. Like, No, we shouldn't. It, first it openly nice gay to, this, yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, this person did this because 
they're awesome or whatever. You yeah. Know? First person to win this award. First person to be in this thing. First, you know, person of this type. Like, it's it's interesting because I, I think basically like if you it's basically like you could start with the default and then if people complain, then you can add. And I think it would right. be nice if the default was just let's include everybody. Like, I still don't understand a lot of the like the resistance towards just having just more, you know, like just more people of all backgrounds. But I do understand at the very least, you know, the things that I can do to try to make some form of equity, you know, like and people ask, like, what's equity? What's equity? You know, like. I like to use equity a lot more because the nuance there is basically equal support and resource, right? It's not, uh, when people complain like, oh, it's not that we don't want to hire somebody at this background. It's that we don't know where to find them or there's not enough like, you know, applicants or this, that, and the other. That show, that that is putting the the onus of whether or not we do or do not succeed solely on us without taking into account whether or not like this was even a thought in our mind like I didn't think about being a game designer until I was 20 something because I didn't it didn't even occur to me that that's something that I could do you know like you need people to give you a view into a world you know that's why often when you know some random high school or something hits me up if I have time I'll go because, you know, not every kid in there is going to end up as a game designer, but it helps to know that that's something that they could do, you know? Um, and when I did, uh, I did a product um, called Black is Magic, which was basically a set sort of card release for Magic the Gathering when I worked at Wizards of the Coast. Um, I was a creative lead and I worked with a bunch of really talented artists um, and, you know, the team and the creative team. And we came up with a, a basically story that I wanted to create around each of these cards that exemplified and showed black culture. And I was able to do things that I didn't think I'd be able to, but I just wanted people to sort of see the humanity, right? Excuse me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, in a world where we're so polarized and, you know, it's always sort of us versus them, this versus that. Sometimes it helps to get back to basics. Uh, so I had, for example, there's this card uh, with this character named Teferi. Teferi is a, like, time wizard. He uh, has been part of the franchise for a very long time. He's got the nostalgia factor, you know, uh, and when he came back and returned to Dominaria... Everybody universally was like, yeah, and I was surprised because I was like, oh, this is this is a good reaction. I like this. Um, so <laughs> when it was time to make the product, I'm like, oh, he absolutely has to be there, you know, like uh, and uh, the card that we ended up coming up with him uh, is actually a card where he's with his family. So he's also one of the only family men in the franchise. He has a known wife. And they knew her name, but she never had a physical depiction at that point. And he has a daughter, but because, you know, he's on his time wizard stuff, his daughter looks, uh, she ages alongside him. He doesn't really age. 
and then he sort of has like a few little grays or whatever but uh she gets gray too and so they're kind of adults and gray together and it's an interesting dichotomy um she's a skilled healer you know but a lot of her childhood like there were a couple cards um was kind of obscured and i wanted to do sort of a capture like a moment that felt like a moment that i lived um and so the image of that is him with his daughter on uh on on his shoulders and she's like laughing and she's got cute little buns and his wife is like laughing with him and it was just kind of like a really good like dad card and the best thing that came out of that product was not just the money that it raised for Black Girls Code because it was a philanthropic drop, but it was also seeing the reaction of people from all backgrounds, you know, people who were like, I am a father and this meant a lot to me and not having to justify or qualify why it was important and not having him being black and this person not being black be a barrier for understanding the fundamental joys and love of fatherhood, you know? And being able to subtly show a depiction of positive black fatherhood since there is that stereotype that, you know, the, the, the black fathers don't stay or like there are no good black, like just the idea, cause I have a, a phenomenal black father, you know, like he, <laughs> he's, 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 I know if I'm ever having a difficulty, I can call him, you know? And the assurity and the love that I have, I wanted to pour in that card. And every time I see that card, I feel that. And I just wanted other people to feel that, you know? Um, there's, it was crazy, but I'm happy that it was well-received. And those are the kinds of things I want to be more in the world. Yeah, it's a really, I mean, I, I went through the whole deck online and um, the artwork is, is great on all of them. But that, that one especially sticks in your mind. Especially for a, for a game where, you know, I, I'm not a big magic player or a card player, but I have played it before. And it's like, you know, you're always constantly thinking about like the, the conflict that's going on between you and another player. And to have this sort of, you know, image depicted where it's like, oh, well, this is really, really wholesome. This is really nice. Um, and the fact that it, it, it broke also barriers in the sense of like, um, you know, you're talking about other people reacting to it where it's like, I'm a father. This means a lot to me. Like, that's got to just mean the world, right? As a, as a, as a creator. And you were like lead creative person on this, on this project, right? Yeah. And, uh, I, I, I definitely, um, it, it definitely meant a lot. And, you know, there are definitely things that I saved, like apparently like people who were not even into magic got into it. There was like this Reddit post where, um, a girl was talking about how, She's in STEM field, she's in, you know, college, and she's having so much difficulty feeling very alone and feeling very like, you know, with her back up against the wall in her program, she's been struggling. And her uh, boyfriend uh, found the product and the stories that I wrote behind it, because I wrote like an article series sort of situation and shared it with her. And she said that it meant so much because, you know, it reminded her that, like, she does belong in the space and, like, she's excited to go back to school. And I was like, oh, tears, disgusting, yeah. terrible tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there was also a couple of opposite, you know, reactions. Like, the, the person who voices Teferi uh, got some hate 
you know, like, and they were, they had posted about it that somebody had called it, you know, the N-word lair. Because the product is called Secret Lair. And they're like, ah, oh, I guess we got this, you know, like, so it's like, oh, we got the N-word lair. And it's just like, I... It, it's 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 like I said, it's that price of admission. It's that double-edged sword. It's having to just focus on what you can control and focus on what you are doing and focusing on the positive. Because I think because, at least for me, I grew up in an age of digital, you know, going from that weird period of like straight up VCRs to CD-ROMs to like the streaming, like really just seeing how the world and the way we consume media changes. We all know that like negative things like elicit emotions, emotions elicit engagement and engagement sells. So like even just having to decondition myself to being like this one negative thing doesn't invalidate everything. I mean, I, I, I admire your I admire your your perspective on it to be like, I'm not going to let this invalidate what I did. Like this is this is one like because I think it'd be very easy to get wrapped up in, in taking that really personally and getting pissed off. And, and, you know, so hats off to you for not, for not doing that. I mean, I think that's, you know, why a lot of people leave the game industry. Cause even, you know, it's, it, and it's a difficult thing because it's not, it, it, I, I don't want to say it's harder or less, you know, it feels like it's harder as me, but there are plenty of people who are parts of uh, fan bases that are game developers for fan bases that are a bit toxic, and they experience, you know, that same level of animosity and, you know, that level of, like, I'm going to dox you because you retconned my character, you know, like, it's, it's interesting because we delve into a space that is fantasy, and is fictional, and yet, like, people wrap their entire true lives and identity around them. And so, like, with no separation between those things, everything that you do, you know, feels like it could be either an attack or a boon. There's no middle ground to sort of sort through, like, okay, well, they made this design choice because of this, that, the other, like... I don't think the average gamer is thinking about design choices. They're just thinking about whether or not, you know, it makes them feel good or bad. You know, I, I always wonder, like, how far I want to go in games. You know, like, right now, I'm still sort of towards the beginning. But there have definitely been moments where I was like, if this is what it is, if it's, you know, always going to be this hard to show that I have, you know, if it's if it's always going to be this difficult to be comfortable. Maybe I shouldn't. You know, there were definitely moments where I wanted, when I was thinking maybe I should just stop. Like, maybe I should just quit. And I don't know why I didn't, <laughs> to be honest. Like, I don't know why. But I think it was just an idea that I entertained and I was like, no. And now, you know, with a couple of years under my belt, I have a assurance in myself, in the way that I move through the world that comes from within. And that's what you need as a game designer of any kind. But I, wor I worry about the game designers that just start off and are trying so hard to make a way and their fundamental experiences are difficult and they don't know, like, 
whether or not it's their ability or if it's who they are and they have that imposter syndrome and they struggle from that mentally and the ways in which that changes them for the better or the worse throughout their career. You know, um, mental health within the game industry is something that I feel like very few people talk about, you know, doing crunch and having sprints and, you know, the, the informality or the formality of how your boss speaks with you and how that impacts your work and your ability to talk with someone, you know, and then companies that have such good reputations that, you know, everybody wants to work there. So you, you know, you're replaceable and you get that sense that if you complain or if you, uh, are, are not up to the task of whatever is asked of you, you'll just lose an opportunity. And the things that people are willing to sort of endure, you know, thinking about what happened with Blizzard and Riot, like casually being willing to sort of endure things that, uh, that you feel like you just have to because there's no alternative. And then realizing that the alternative exists and then like, still having that experience having happened, you know, like even when things do change for the better. And I know that a lot of those companies that, you know, I references are supposedly changing for the better. Like you still have that lived experience of what went down and you have to deal with that. You know, like your company might pay for mental health resources if you're lucky, but none of them are going to, you know, outside of whatever, I guess, HR proceedings need to happen no one's going to hold your hand and tell you, yes, you are worthy to be in this space. You do good work. The things that happened were not okay. You know, like, we're going to we're gonna make sure it doesn't happen again by adding in this policy and that policy and that policy. Like, that doesn't always happen organically. Um, because ultimately, like gaming communities, gaming companies have their own culture that they're trying to protect. And feeling new, you know, feeling... Uh, change can make some of the people who are uh, in charge who have been there for X amount of years, 10, 20 years, feel as though they're, they have that attack. I think it's the same sense of attack that people feel when they're like, they're changing the, you know, Ariel and they're, you know, trying to do, it's, it's that same well of, 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 of feared obsolete, uh, obsolescence. And I think that once we can get to a point where we understand that Everyone is just trying to do the same thing. You know, we are all the hero of our own story, trying to complete our hero's arc, you know, trying to find the mentors that will help shape us into the people that we need to be. And understanding that you being pre-existing and you having all this lived experience and having gone through that yourself doesn't mean that when the new hero shows up, you're going to be replaced. It means you have the opportunity to instill in them and mentor in them and give them the values that you think are important and they may not take your advice but you will have actively participated in shaping someone's lived experience and the heroic acts and deeds that they may one day do for the greater world and I could think of no greater honor and maybe that's because my mom was a teacher you know but Ultimately, I would hope that with my career, you know, I keep getting in the thick of it. <laughs> I keep growing. I keep learning. And then eventually I can somehow pass that on. Like, I feel like for me, 
that would be a good game design career. Well, uh, not to speak for anyone else, but you make me want to run through a wall right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kool Aid Man. Uh, it's inspiring, honestly. Um, it's very thoughtful. I was trying to think of the right descriptor, but I think everything you're saying right there is just extremely thoughtful. You've thought about this a lot. You have a a mo big time. Oh yeah, no, I'm just I'll just be yeah. drinking tea, staring <laughs> at the ceiling, like I wonder what the purpose of life is. It's sort of like, like uh, <laughs> it was like existential there for a second. Um, it's really thinking about just like the totality of everything that you're doing and trying to do, and and then sort of legacy, right? Yeah. Like, I play, uh, I like roguelikes. Um, I like a lot of things, but one of the things I've been into lately a lot is roguelikes. I was late to the Don't Starve train, uh, but I got into it over the pandemic. And I kind of think of Don't Starve as my, like, meditation. If you're not familiar with the game, it's an indie game where basically you're dropped into this sort of, like, purgatory-esque void where you need to just immediately kind of jump in and survive, like... There's very sparse instructions. Uh, you have to learn a lot from the community or just trial and error. And there, everything is out to kill you. Darkness is out to kill you. You know, like there's no permanent saves. Like you are constantly either looking for resources or trying to protect yourself from things. And at the end of it, you know you're going to die because eventually it's going to get you. Like, you're either going to die from something stupid. Like, I was playing the Together version, which is the one they update. And I hadn't gotten to the new updates. And I made it to spring because you start in different seasons. And I was like, look at me. I survived winter. It was great. And then spring. And they had frog rain. And frogs uh, in the spring are a, an aggressive mob. And so, like, I was like, wow, things are good. I was playing Wendy, which is this character who has... Uh, her sister, who is a ghost, um, her twin sister, protecting her and is physically weak. But she, I like her gameplay because she's a passive game player and I don't necessarily want to be in the fray because my kiting isn't all that good. You know, like my thumbs be thumbing. I don't know what happens all the time. Um, <laughs> and so like she died because uh, sometimes she doesn't listen like she's her own entity so she ended up like surrounded by like a bunch of spiders and they were just getting at her and I was like ah Abigail uh sorry and I had to run back and I'm like all right my sanity is going down this is terrible and then the, the frog rain started and all of a sudden I'm just trapped and it was terrible and I died immediately and I was like ah <laughs> There's the frustration, there's the loss, there's I'm gonna have to start over and over again. Why? I'm not gonna play this game anymore. Like, just always going through that, you know? Like, uh, why am I putting myself through this? And then you play again, you know? And you play again, and you get a little further, and you do a bit better. But you understand, ultimately, like, there's something about roguelikes that I think is really nice, because it accepts death it accepts impermanence and it accepts that the who you are right now in this moment is gonna die and who you become may be stronger and get further but that will also die and then you will continue to continue this cycle of rebirth and death within your own self until you eventually reach that cycle yourself but it it helps you accept loss i think in a way that uh in our sort of fairy tale beginning middle end happy ever after sort of idea of how things should be can disrupt because that's the more re realistic version of life 
yeah. waxing poetic on roguelikes. <laughs> but like, yeah, <laughs> I'll just be like playing that and think like, you know, whatever. Yes, the game is also fun, right? That brings me back. But that's life. Life is also fun. You know, so I'll be playing that game and like just thinking sometimes. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that. I think I'm hoping that by the end of whatever sort of heroic arc that I'm going through, I will be satisfied. I will be happy. And I also understand life doesn't always have to be struggle. You know, it doesn't always have to be dying and rebirth. Sometimes it could just be sitting on the couch and watching something and just being like, this is all I want to do today. Yeah. Stasis is good sometimes. It is, you know, especially when you're somebody who pushes too hard and you can be prone to burnout. Yeah. People work very hard in this country. Most of us don't get enough rest. I know. I don't get enough rest. <laughs> uh, so, you know, all of those factors factor into how we approach the world. And I think that games has a very unique space in media because it allows you to be in the center of a story and interact with a story in a way that other media doesn't. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's the word, right? Is is interaction, right? I think interaction, yeah, yeah it, 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 the interactivity of, of the medium separates it from from everything else because you have something to say, you have something to do, and I think you know the thing that's really exciting to me is that I think we're just sort of scratching the surface as to what that could mean for storytelling and how how far we can really take that. So I feel like a lot of games are cribbing, uh, you know, cine- uh, cinema and and novels and things like that. But it's like there are some games that don't do that, where they really make interactivity part of the story. Um, and I think the more we can do that, the more we can get away from from the cutscenes and and things like that, and really put our story into the gameplay. And you know, and it's easier said than done, right? I mean, but the more that that can happen. Oh yeah, but I'm enjoying what's. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, I feel like I feel like the thing that's different is like there are now games that don't skill gate you, right? Like before, to a certain extent, to enjoy games, you had to be good at games. We're now in a place where like there are there are games like you know uh, what was the Detroit game with the robots? Oh, Detroit uh, Become Human. Yeah, there we go. Cool, Detroit Become Human, where like the interactions are choices and they have impact and they suck you in. And you might have quick time events, but ultimately, like, you don't have to be able to remember the combo in order to enjoy that experience. And there are multiple endings, and there's multiple ways to succeed, and there's puzzles, and there's agency. And I think it does very well in the horror genre, because, like, you know, horror itself is kind of like a little, uh, you know, like, it gets your blood pumping. And it, it, it also sort of validates why some of these decisions need to be made in a split second. Yeah, that's and that's a genre that definitely lends itself to games because you can put yourself in any sort of horror situation. Like, well, what would I do? Yeah. In this scenario. Oh yeah, yeah. don't sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think it's just cool because it's like this is. I think it's just showing that the priorities are shifting for the community. You know, like. Sure, there will always be the things that we just enjoy doing. Like, I love a 2D platformer. I do love, you know, Overwatch. Sombra's my main. You know, like, there's a bunch of things that we can still enjoy. But understanding that there's just so much more, you know? There's so much more. Well, Sydney, this was a lot of fun. I could talk to you all day. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I want to make sure you can 
get back to, to, to what you're doing. Yes. Get back to your day. Gotta go and, back to uh, work. <laughs> gotta go back to work. Um, but is there anything you want to plug? Any, 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 anything at all? Uh, we always want to give people time at the end of the show to, to plug anything that either they're working on or friends working on or, or whatever, whatever you like to plug. As for me, I, I currently work at Take-Two Interactive. Um, I'm working on the Kerbal Space Program 2 team, so that will be coming out soon. Uh, they announced the date for early access, so uh, definitely be sure to check that out. I'm working on the game design team there, and we are working hard and very excited to see how the KSB community will, ex- uh, will you know receive it. Um, as for me... Um, I usually plug my Twitter, but I don't know what's happening in the world right now. So uh, <laughs> I guess uh, my Twitter is uh, rainy underscore fro, R-A-I-N-I underscore F-R-O. Um, so if you kind of want to, I guess, keep track of what I'm doing, I don't, uh, I won't necessarily be updating in any sort of consistent manner. It'll be sporadic appearances like I prefer. I, I like to be a gopher hiding under the ground and just popping my head up once in a while. Um, you can sort of follow me there, but other than that, um, yeah, I don't have anything else to plug and I am very thankful that you asked me to the show. This was fun. Oh, we're very, very thankful to have you on. This was, this was great. And, um, best of luck on development on your game and looking forward to when that comes out. Awesome. Thank you. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode. We want to thank Sydney again for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud. Clear as Mud.